realize this, but the sermon for today is from Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. So, Tim, you want to come preach it? But in all seriousness, uh, even as we were meeting this morning and praying and um, people were sharing things the Lord has put on their heart, again, this is another affirmation that, that the Lord has, has been giving us these thoughts and these burdens that all tie into the text for today. Um, so would you guys go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. And as we begin, I do want to make an announcement that... Um, I don't know if any of you guys know him, but you may. There's a, a man named Will Broadshonda who is uh, one of the pastors in our denomination, started a pastor's college in Zambia, and has been doing incredible work in not only Zambia, but training pastors from around the region in Africa. And unfortunately, he contracted COVID and passed away this last week. Um, so we're going to be lifting up his family in prayer. And... Um, he, he was uh, a workhorse when it comes to the pastor's college, so uh, they're going to have to really rely on the Lord to, to help them kind of pick up the pieces from all that he was doing. So um, that's really all our only announcement for today, and uh, that's going to be our prayer point as we jump in. So would you guys take some moments and uh, let's just kind of soak in where we just were and, and look to the Lord in prayer as we dig into this text for today. Lord Jesus, we come before you in a room full of people that have been shaken in many different ways by many different circumstances. And Lord, oftentimes we feel control slipping away or being ripped away from us as things happen that go beyond what we feel like we can bear. Yet, as we'll see, you've called us to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so, Lord, this morning, as we gather together, we want to lift up Wilbrod's family, his wife, his children, his friends, his coworkers, his colleagues who are doing work alongside of him. Lord, we want to ask that you would strengthen them during this time of incredible loss. We want to ask that you would supernaturally and so kindly and lovingly meet those individuals where they feel that need so acutely, where they feel the loss of Wilbrod. Lord, would you, would you step in and help them to feel that you are carrying them? Would they feel the peace of your nearness to them? And Lord, I do pray for the continuation of the work that he began. We thank you and we bless you for all that Wilbrod has accomplished for your kingdom during his earthly life. And we we bless your name that you've called him to be with you. We celebrate that, Lord. And so now I ask as we dig into your word, Lord, would you speak through me? Would you enable me to, to make the connections of all these wonderful truths that you've been burdening us with, Lord, and help us to, to be impacted by that truth in such a way that we walk away changed by your glorious truth. Lord, open our hearts to receive, open our ears to pay attention, and open our eyes to behold the wondrous unseen things 
that are waiting for us in heaven. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to just start out by circling back and reminding you guys of where we've been the last two weeks. Because when we jump into a mini-series like this, we don't have the benefit of um, kind of coming back to the book over and over again. And so before we know it, the series on faith is going to be over. So I want to remind you of what Dan said two weeks ago. He said that 2021 is the year of Caleb's faith. This year is an opportunity for our church family to grow, to mature in faith. But not just generic faith. Faith that is characterized by a singular focus, a wholehearted devotion, and enduring resolve to see God's kingdom come to bear in our presence. We want to see his kingdom realized in greater and greater measure as we obey him in faith. And so even before we get into the text for today, I want to encourage you just to receive that seed that Dan cast out among us. Receive that seed, that faith theme, and ponder it, pray over it persistently. We want to plant that deep in our heart because we don't want that theme of Caleb's faith to go away next week when we move on. And I, I, I believe that, uh, I think I'm going to do, do this at the end, but I think it's important for us to identify specific promises of God, specific burdens that God has put in our hearts for this church, to identify those things and then to persistently pray for them and pursue them in faith. So I think I want to take some time at the end to, to really identify those things. But we'll get there in a moment. So then remember, that was two weeks ago. Then last week, we talked about how that faith impacts our communion with God. What does God say about our relationship with him, specifically from Hebrews 12 last week? And how can we grow in our communion and our relationship with God as we understand these truths about him and then act upon them. If you remember, the beginning of Hebrews 12 is about discipline. We talked about discipline. And what we learned last week is that it is necessary for us to walk through the incredibly difficult circumstances that God uses and, and redeems to shape us, to sanctify us, to refine us, and to prepare us to come into his kingdom. Remember, faith is not just some mystical experience. It is receiving truth and reasoning with it, believing it to be true, and then acting as if it were true. And it's when we act upon that reason truth that we begin to experience the thing that is hoped for. When it comes to discipline, when it comes to hardship, when it comes to suffering, it's so important that we think of those circumstances as loving discipline from our Father that is intended to bear within us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's so important that we reason with that truth, that we ponder it, that we believe it to be true, and then we think as if it's true, we speak as if it's true, and we act as if it's true. Whatever the hardship is, we've got to think, speak, and act as if it is God lovingly disciplining us and preparing us to, to share in his holiness. That's what Hebrews says. 
we share in the holiness of God as we're disciplined as children. If Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, how much more must we suffer to learn obedience? But now today, we're going to move on from communion. And remember, we're, we're using the language of our church values. So we're moving into community. What does God say about his community, his family, his church? And what are the promises that he's given to that community which demand our trust? So then, once we consider that truth, what are the action steps that we have to put in place, that we have to grow in, to grow in our community as God's children. So when you read through the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it becomes plainly obvious that we were designed for communion, right? We, we can all attest to that. We were made for relationship. Most importantly, we were designed for relationship with our creator. But outside of that relationship, we were designed to be together in intimate relationship, shameless relationship, in unified perfect communion with God. So we're going to be considering today how our faith can, can grow and mature and impact our community here as God's people. Community, to use the language from our value statement, community is essential for all followers of Jesus. So would you guys look at Hebrews 12? Tim already read it, but I would like to read through it again. I want our minds to be saturated in this text. Look at verse 18, Hebrews 12:18. It says this, "For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned." Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, all things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When it comes to the community of God, the very first truth that stands out from this text, where, we'll, where we will begin today, is that God's community is much more than what we can see. As the section of Hebrews begins, the writer takes us back to this incredible narrative from Exodus chapter 19. 
This is the mountaintop meeting between Moses and Yahweh. And the writer, actually, kind of the way John does in Revelation, pulls together these phrases from throughout Exodus and throughout Deuteronomy, and he fuses them together in these first several verses to give us this summary picture of what was happening there at the mountain. It was in that incredible sequence of events that the Lord unveiled his eternal glory. He gave a glimpse of that glory to people on the earth. It was at that mountain, that physical, earthly tower made of stone and dirt, that the people of God met the presence of God. That unveiling of glory, the collision of the mortal and the immortal, the physical and the spiritual, the visible, the invisible. It was a distinct moment in all of human history. And it was distinct because it signaled the advancement of God's redemptive plan. His campaign against the powers of darkness had now taken a step further as he came down on that mountain. The meeting on Mount Sinai produced a covenant that was initiated by God with man that created a community of worshipers. And that community of worshipers was created out of rescued slaves. You see, he established communion through community. The point here in Hebrews 12 is that the people who physically encountered that glory of God the invisible God on the mountain, had to have the utmost concern with holiness. They were commanded not even to touch the mountain. Not even an animal could touch the mountain and survive. They were commanded to prepare themselves for two days before that meeting. They had to consecrate themselves, cleanse themselves. The text says they had to stay away from intimate relationships with each other. They had to prepare for the meeting with God. These were literal, physical boundaries put in place by God to preserve the lives of unholy people. The weight of God's glory, the power of his holy presence, was so overwhelming and terrifying that the people said, Moses, we can't, we can't contain this. You have to stand between us. We can't take any more commands, any more words. You have to stand before us. Even Moses himself was trembling with fear, yet he was called to go up the mountain. The people who experienced God's glory in that way experienced God in a way that none of us have. They saw the fire and the smoke rising from the mountain. They felt the earth shaking. They heard the trumpet blasts. They heard the thundering voice of God. Imagine what that must have been like to be in that assembly of people. But the astounding thing that the writer to the Hebrews in this letter has been getting at and building up to is that we have been called to something far greater. See, the whole point of the letter of Hebrews is that Jesus uniquely and irreversibly advanced God's eternal redemptive plan another step to the penultimate stage where now there's just one final thing that has to take place. It's the gathering of God's elect before he returns to set all things right. That's a step, that's an advancement that can never be undone. 
through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest high priest, as we see in Hebrews, the eternal kingdom has been inaugurated and the stage has been set for that final reconciling of all things. And so with that in mind, verse 18 says, you have not come to what can be touched. God's community no longer assembles around a mountain. That mountain was the touch point of heaven on earth, but we no longer assemble there. We no longer assemble around the tent of meeting or the temple. Those of you who call yourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, those of you who have decided to follow him with your life, have joined a community that goes far beyond what we can see, what we can touch, what we can experience right here face to face. He says in verse 22, you have come to another mountain. And that mountain is in heaven, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. I want you guys to look around the room at each other. Just get some eyes on each other. This is what we can see and touch, right? And certainly, based on what we read in Scripture, we are the community of God, right? Those of us who have trusted in Christ are his community, but we are not all his community. His community extends far beyond this right here. His assembly of his community right now is in heaven gathered around his throne in that heavenly throne room, Mount Zion, worshiping King Jesus in all of his glory. And the, the capital, the headquarters, the seat of our kingdom isn't here, it's there. And there's endless worship and adoration taking place around the risen lamb in that headquarters, in that capital, all centered around King Jesus. I think that one of the temptations that we often fall to is that we narrow our perception of God's community to what we can see and feel and hear right here in this room. We narrow our understanding, not even intentionally, but we just think about one another, right? We're average people. We've got average lives. I love you guys, but we're all just normal people. There's nothing really special about us. And so we grow accustomed to this routine of the status quo. And when we do that, even though we don't mean to, we take our focus off of that heavenly throne room and we place the focus here. And so our community actually becomes us-centered. Our challenges, our, our disagreements with one another, the struggles that we face, the affairs of this world, those things begin to dominate our focus rather than what is happening in our community in heaven right now. What we do is we force our understanding of God and his community through our own experiences. And we reduce our eternal citizenship to the here and now. And as a result, what happens is that our community, and not even just our church, but any church in general, when we do that, we begin to take on the shape of the world around us. We begin to be conformed by what's happening in the world, not transformed by the heavenly community and by God himself. And so this leads us right into the second main point. The truth about God's community that we see here is that God's community is an eternally indestructible kingdom. 
I don't think I need to convince anyone of this. But we've been witnessing an incredible breakdown in our communities. Not only in our neighborhoods, but in our city and our nation. The reality is that the broader community of humanity is suffering from incredible polarization. There's division. There is um, just disagreement on everything, and there's aggression towards one another. I don't have to convince you guys of that. We see it play out every day. And the sad thing is that so often the church, at least in, in in our nation, often tends to be divided along those same lines as what the world is divided by. But the fact is that right now, we need to understand biblical community, maybe more than ever. We have to understand and practice biblical community as the people of God, because our citizenship is in heaven, it's not on earth. And the community around us is flailing for survival. We belong to a community that is eternally indestructible, it is unshakable. Listen to the demographics of those who dwell in the heavenly community. This is mind-blowing. Look at verse 22 again. This is who we're in community with. You've come to the city of the living God, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God himself, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. God's community is diverse. We struggle with diversity just with people. But God's community isn't only people from every tribe and tongue around the world throughout history, but there's angels there, and there's God himself there. Think about that diversity. You know, we, we struggle as a human race, and we know theologically it's because of sin, but the world doesn't necessarily understand it to be that way. But we struggle with this concept of diversity, right? Even just with people. Think about how can we be part of a community that has so many beings that are so different than us? How can we be brought into that and expect to get along with everyone? Well, the fact is, Paul says in Philippians 3 that Jesus is transforming us into the image of his resurrected self by the same power that he has subjected everything under his feet. That's why discipline and sanctification, as we talked about last week, are so essential for us because we can't just enter into God's presence the way we are right now. There's got to be a transformation that takes place. And the beautiful fact is that The diversity in heaven is greater than we can ever imagine, and we will be transformed so that when we get there, there's perfect unity. Not only are there angels there celebrating, that's what festal gathering is. The angels are celebrating the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. But the second group in the community that we belong to is a heavenly assembly of those who have died in Christ already and have been joined together with him. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and his assembly is enrolled in heaven. They're around him right now. And skip over a phrase. It says that those are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
they have already undergone that transformation and they've been perfected to be able to survive in God's presence. But finally, the center of the community, the chief, the head, the cornerstone, the foundation, is God himself, the judge of all, and Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant. Jesus is the one who intentionally created this community by sprinkling his blood, the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which cried out from the ground to the Lord. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance, but the blood of Christ calls out to us that redemption is found in him alone. That community is the cloud of witnesses that we talked about last week, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That's the cloud of witnesses that's surrounding us. They're cheering us on. They've already made it. They've attained to the prize of the upward call of Christ. They know what's in store for us, and they're, they're hoping and cheering and waiting for us to get there. That's why the text says we need to lay aside every distraction. But beyond this incredible diversity of God's community, the fact that we are bound up together with saints and angels and God himself, that in and of itself is mind-blowing. But beyond that, the next section describes the unshakable nature of this community. Look at verse 25. He says, see that you don't refuse him who's speaking. Make sure you don't refuse him. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The writer here, again, is relying on this kingdom advancement logic we are called to something far greater. Make sure that you don't refuse Jesus who is calling you to assemble around his throne. Make sure that you don't ignore his call or his commands. The people who gathered at Sinai were terrified by his holy presence. The fact is they could immediately see if they disobeyed the commands that he set before them. They would immediately reap the consequences of that disobedience. And that was when the glory of God was only temporarily revealed in the enemy territory of earth. Think about the fact that now Jesus has defeated the enemy. He's overthrown the kingdom of darkness. He's, been as he's ascended to his throne. He's been exalted above everything how much more must we be concerned about approaching him rightly? We have to understand the magnitude of his victory. The empty tomb in Jerusalem set off a cosmic shift and an irreversible advancement of his campaign to redeem his people. If people were undone by thunder and smoke and fire, how much more should we be undone by Christ our King? Think about the vision in John, of John in Revelation 1, the living one, 
the one with eyes like fire. How much more should we be undone before him? The text is clear that there will be a day, and sooner than we think, when Jesus returns to bring eternal justice. Verse 27 says, He will remove all things that can be shaken, all things that have been made. The implication of that statement is so important for how we think of the church community and how we live. Material things, the things that we can see and touch, will be destroyed. The natural, physical things that we see around us will be eternally shaken. The sad reality is that even people who refuse the words of Christ will be shaken. They will be removed. The, the crazy thing is that the text says that those things will be shaken and will be removed so that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. In other words, the unholy things of earth must be destroyed in order for us to be united with Christ. The unholy things and even unholy people who reject Christ, as terrible and sad as it is to say, simply cannot survive in God's presence. His glory, his presence is an all-consuming fire, as the text says in verse 29. Burning away all false desires, burning away anything that has not been transformed into his image. You know, this isn't even the primary application of this text, but I want you to stop for a minute and think about the physical things that you interact with each day. Think about the things that you use and depend on every day that can be seen, that can be touched. Now consider this. What are the things that are causing the biggest source of anxiety and stress in your life? Are those things causing that anxiety things of this earth that will be burned up and destroyed by God's consuming fire? Are the, the biggest stressors in your life things like money, your house, your car, your health, your appearance, your job? Those things are certainly important. They're certainly a gift of God. They're certainly useful. But those things don't last for eternity. And so if your heart is caught up, if you're anxious over those things, we've got to do some rearranging at the heart level. All those things do is they take our attention off the Christ-centered community that's in heaven. They distract us, they weigh us down from advancing his kingdom. Think about what Jesus says, and uh, I forget who said it this morning. Maybe it might have been Allie. Jesus says that we need to treasure the heavenly things that will never be destroyed. He says that we need to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, and all these other things will be added. Paul says that we need to fix our attention, our eyes, upon heavenly things and put to death the things of this earth. We can no longer go on letting our hearts be wrapped up in all these civilian pursuits, as Paul would call them. We cannot let them weigh us down because all those things that are of this world will be destroyed. And they must be destroyed in order for us to be transformed into his image forever. Forever. 
The simple fact is that we belong to a kingdom that is eternally indestructible. And so even as everything else around us is falling apart, we look at our society, we read the news, we see everything is eroding and falling and crumbling. But we have a living hope that is imperishable, it's incorruptible, it's eternal. And we've come through Christ alone to an assembly of the most diverse population. It stretches across the heavens and the earth through all history. Perfected saints, powerful angels, all gathered around Jesus, worshiping him. That's a community that is so much more than what we see here. That's a community that will never be shaken. The substance of our community exists primarily in heaven as we await that meeting on the mountaintop. So as we consider those truths about God's community, let's put it into practice. Remember, our faith grows when we receive truth, when we believe it to be true, and then we act as if it's true. And God proves himself trustworthy when we do that. And as he proves himself trustworthy, all that does is stir up greater faith within us, which stirs us on to greater obedience, which brings greater glory to Christ. So in order for us to grow in community as a church, we've got to do it through the lens of faith. Remember the, the text from the call to worship, the things that are unseen are the eternal things. And Hebrews talks about faith dealing specifically with those things that are unseen. So we must approach our understanding of God's community through faith. What are the faith action steps that we have to take? They're both found in this text in verse 28. The first thing that we must do, that we must enact, the steps of obedience to these truths, is to be grateful for this kingdom that is unshakable. Gratitude is a characteristic of a heart that adores Jesus. But it's also something that has to mature and grow over time. Gratitude, in some ways, is a discipline, it's a practice, and it has to be intentional. Think about that. Are you intentionally cultivating a heart of gratitude? You know, when, when things go well, and our heart is naturally filled with gratitude, often our words can't keep up with the gratitude that's coming out of our heart. But when things are difficult, when our hearts are heavy, when we face those challenges, when we're in, a, in one of those disciplined situations where things are so painful, the words and an attitude and an action that represents gratitude are so few and far between most of the time. It's so hard to be thankful in those moments. It's exactly why in those moments we've got to depend on the Holy Spirit because he's the one who's with us, right? He's the one supporting us and carrying us through. He's the one sanctifying us. He is the one that actually can bring about gratitude in us. Ephesians 5 talks about a perpetual state of gratitude as evidence that you are being filled by his spirit. When his spirit is upon you, you are thankful. And when you're empty, you need to be filled with his spirit to be thankful. 
it's this ongoing filling that takes place. And if you read Ephesians 5, that filling takes place when the community of God comes together to worship him and to exhort one another. That filling takes place right here in the community. So it's absolutely necessary for us to be disciplined and mature in expressing our gratitude, even when we don't want to. Even when difficult circumstances arise, we're called to be characterized by gratitude. And by God's grace, this community of saints will grow and mature into a group of people that wants to give thanks in those difficult circumstances. We've got to be grateful for this kingdom that we've received. That's, part, that's why we sing on Sunday mornings, in part, because we're rehearsing the glorious truths. We're singing about it. We're reminding one another. We're speaking that encouragement over each other as we sing our praises to God. But the second thing we see in the text in verse 28 is that we must offer to God acceptable worship. When was the last time you really stopped to consider the fact that not all worship is acceptable to God? Think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a harsh reality. The only ones who will enter that kingdom are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. Just as there were clear instructions and boundaries for the Old Testament saints before the mountain, we have also clear boundaries in place that we must pay attention to. They could not approach God if they ignored the protocol. How much more careful must we be to approach God in this community, in this assembly, with the utmost concern for holiness and acceptable worship? Unfortunately, what is too often the case is that we approach the assembling of God's people without any consecration, without any preparation. And so we come through a week where we've blown through boundaries, past stop signs, we've ignored the things that God has called us to do and not to do, and then we show up here in the gathering of God's community, and we wonder why it doesn't look like what the Bible talks about. It's because we don't approach him rightly oftentimes and we don't bring worship that's acceptable to him. The reality is that we have to stop on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. We have to come before God in humble surrender and confession. We have to consecrate ourselves through his forgiveness this is nothing that we do of, in and of ourselves, right? But we've got to continually be doing that consecration before the Lord because this gathering of God's people is an outpost of what's happening in heaven right now. And as I was studying this, I, I was picturing the scene from The Greatest Showman when they sing the song, This Is Me. You know, there's this party of these wealthy people and what's happening is the circus performers are in the, in the background in the other room and they barge into the presence of those elite people and you see the disconnect, the division between them. 
In some ways, that's what we experience as the, the perfected saints and angels are gathered around the throne of Christ. We're kind of like those circus performers here where we have yet to be transformed. We're the outsiders in some way, yet Hebrews says we are called to come boldly before the throne of grace. We're called to enter into that room because he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. But it has to be correctly, right? We have to come understanding what Christ has done, and we have to be people of God who are concerned with holiness. In closing, I have just two things. I just First of all, I want you to think about, put yourselves in the position of the Israelites who were gathered before the mountain. And God says to Moses, I want the people to gather to worship me around this mountain. My fiery presence is going to come down. Be ready. Put yourself in that position and think about all the things that you were concerned with this week. Think about all the distractions. Think about all the earthly things that held you down. And imagine if you tried to approach that mountain without dealing with those things first. As I've already said, that we must be concerned to the utmost with our preparation of acceptable worship to God. The last thing that I would like to do to change this to a less weighty mood. Um, I want to take the time, I have some paper and pens, for us to identify specific promises of God, even prophetic words that we've been given, burdens that the Lord has put upon our heart for this church, for this community. I, I would like to take the time to write those things down and to bring them as sort of an offering of our of our faith prayers to the Lord. And so, uh, if somebody could pass those out. Um, let's take some time to identify these things. If this is the year of Caleb's faith, if this is the year for us to grow in our faith for communion with God, for community with each other, and for mission to those outside of this community, we've got to identify those things so that we can begin praying for them and obeying towards them. I want to challenge you guys to even, even be specific as you 
as you write these things down. I want this to be an offering of our specific prayers for this community to God that we can that we can look back on as testimonies of God's incredible grace and mercy as we see these things accomplished in our midst. Remember, think about specific promises that God has given about communion with him, about community with each other, promises about our mission as a church. Think about your own personal burdens you've been given by the Lord for this community and write those things down. I'm just going to leave it there with you guys and um, music guys, you can come back and when you guys have written those things down, I want you to just bring them up to the altar and we're just going to leave them here and I'm going to collect those things and we're going to make this our, our goal for this year, the year of Caleb's faith. We're going to pursue these things persistently in prayer. We want to see God glorified as he answers our prayers. Because when that happens, our faith grows. When we obey him, when we trust in him, and he proves himself, our faith is strengthened. So we, when it comes to our community, guys, again, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the heavenly community that is worshiping right now. So we've come to join the song, sung long before ourselves. And we're joining with all nature in manifold witness of Jesus Christ, our King.
Now may the grace of the Lord be 